Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 955. But take a step back and realize that, you know, you're involved in something that's really entertaining and and a lot of fun. And and to everyone who wants to get into the world of that, realize that like passion is what is what gets you here. At the end of the day, you've turned your hobby into a career and, you know, very few people can do that. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am revved up, really revved up, and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, Brian Scotto. Hey, Brian, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Yes, I am. All right. Brian Scotto is the co-founder and chief creative officer of Hoonigan Industries, as well as creative director on Ken Block's ultra-viral Gymkhana series. He first turned his childhood obsession with fast cars into a media profession as an automotive journalist. He served as editor-in-chief for three different enthusiast titles, including the award-winning Zero to 60 magazine, which he founded. After working with Ken Block's marketing team, Brian helped to form Monster World Rally Team, now Hoonigan Racing Division, and it's Brian's creative storytelling approach that has grown the company into what it is today while creating the attitude and authenticity that he has made Hoonigan a subculture of its own. So, Brian... I've told our listeners just a little bit about you and the exciting fun that you have. Would you take a brief moment, share a little bit more about your career and a passion for going really fast in cars? Yeah, I mean, for me, cars have luckily become my life and my career, which is, I think, something that, you know, we often forget in this industry how fortunate we are to have turned a hobby into a, into a career. And yes. For me, you know, it started kind of in my early 20s and got into the magazine business. And really, I it's sort of like I blink now and I forget how quickly a lot of that's passed and how many cool things I've been able to do with cars, whether, you know, it's been in the magazine world or the stuff I've done with Ken or with Hoonigan. And uh, yeah, it's it's been a, it's been a lot of fun. And it's, it's definitely one of those things where I occasionally have to kind of pinch myself and remind myself that this is my everyday and this is my job and I, I get to do this. And I'm not saying it's not a lot of work because it's probably a lot more work than most people think, but it's, you know, it's not a bad thing to call your hobby your career. Oh, no. You've discovered the secret sauce to life. But one thing about you, Brian, is every time I see what you're up to, I'm sure a lot of people like me go, God, this guy's just out goofing around having fun all the time. I mean, how can you have a living doing something like that? But I, I know this stuff takes a lot of time. You're probably up early. You're up late. You work weekends. I mean, we've been trying to connect for over a year now. So (laughs) real briefly, before I jump into a question here with you, what kind of a quick guideline or advice might you give somebody who is thinking about wrapping their passion into a career? What's one or two things behind that that you think someone's got to have to make this be successful? You know, I'll tell you a quick little story. When I was younger, both of my parents are research scientists, and, and they're both very kind of married to their job. And when I was a kid, I remember just watching my parents work like these relentless hours. My mother was always working late. My, you know, my parents were working weekends. And I remember saying to my father when I was probably around seven or eight years old, when I grow up, I'm going to get a normal job. <laughs> And, you know, that that's going to allow me to have my own time. I'm not going to work as hard as you guys do. Mm. And my father said, we'll see, we'll see. Yeah. He said, but, you know, 
remember if you know if you do what you love you never work a day in your life which is such a kind of cliched term and as i've grown older i've actually realized that if you do what you love you work every day of your life yeah. oh, <laughs> that's yeah. the difference yeah so, so <laughs> remind me of the cats in the cradle song you know you turn out to be just like your dad you didn't even realize you were going to do it so mm-hmm. oh it's great but it is fun when we work in a field of passion you and i are doing the same thing and as we continue on your journey i always like to start by asking my guests for a success quote or a mantra, some kind of saying that has a meaning for you. It's a nice way to get the, in your case, inspirational tire smoking, because you guys do a lot of that here on Cars. Yeah, so Brian, take the wheel. You know, for me, I, I think a mantra or kind of a quote, and I, and I don't really know who said it, or I, I've kind of heard it, and I, I've sort of stuck by it my whole life. And, you know, I, I think early on, someone had told me something to the effect of, you know, don't ever get too big to mop the floors yourself. Mm. And I think all the way through life, I've always kind of treated my work and everything we've done that way where, you know, making sure that I was as attached to the lowest level position of what we were doing. So whether or not I was at the magazine and I wasn't afraid to do the research work or the copy editing work, even if I was the editor in chief, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think the same thing has grown to being director on Ken's films. It's like I'm the one that my producer or my AD will yell at me because I'll be like running and helping a PA get their job done. And I don't think it's as much about being humble. It's just a matter of fact of like sticking, kind of realizing what your the full picture of your job is and what you're doing and being involved in all the different pieces. I think one of the problems that I have in, in what I do is I sometimes can't let go of certain things, uh, maybe yes. I micromanage or whatever, but I, part of it too is understanding and knowing every piece of that job. You know, you hear of families own hotel businesses and they make their kids work through every piece of the job to get there. And I think that there's a real importance in that. And I, you know, I proved myself that way in my, in my career, I started as an intern and I worked every level kind of all the way up to the top. And to this day, I'm still not afraid to go back and do that internship level work because it's, still a part of the business and you know and there's enjoyment levels to it as well i think so yeah i think you're right my dad taught me a valuable lesson way back he said if you're working for somebody or in a company act as if you own the company and that means you care about everything Mm -hmm. if it means picking up a piece of trash in the hallway instead of going ah the janitor will get that tonight it's because you care and because it means something to you and you want it to be successful and you want it to be great so it sounds like that's approach you've taken Oh, for sure. I mean, when I was at the magazine, I didn't own a lick of it, but I worked just as hard as I do today running Hoonigan. It's it's kind of, I think, just the work ethic that you create. And it's because I own my work. Yes. Whether or not I own the company or not, my name is on that work. And because of that, there's an ownership in everything I make or create or a part of. Well, no doubt. And I think seeing your parents work so hard, you just went, that's what life is about. You work very hard. It doesn't matter how much time it takes. You put the time in to make it right. So uh, that kind of thing they instilled in you, that integrity and hard work ethic and that grit, uh, no doubt, has carried through and worked really well <laughs> for you, for sure. Well, let's go back in time and talk about a story that instigated your passion for cars. Is there a pivotal moment in your life when you knew you were a car guy? Yeah, for sure. I, you know, I grew up in New York City, and I, one thing that New York City does not create a lot of is, uh, is car guys. I mean, there's definitely a good culture there in New York, but most of my friends growing up didn't even bother to get their driver's license with the subway system and having very little place to kind of keep or, or work on cars. 
it wasn't really a, a major part of the culture I grew up around. But my grandfather, who was kind of this, you know, classic kind of rags to riches story, worked, uh, you know, in his father's fruit stand and had a bunch of kind of failed businesses throughout his life. And eventually his actually his wife, my grandmother, created uh, kind of a junk mail business, to be quite honest. And I apologize to everyone now about that. But <laughs> they ended up, you know, doing very well and making a lot of money. And my grandfather ended up spending a good share of that money on on cars. So when I was young we spent summers with him and you know he had a vacation house in the hamptons and where he had mo- he had more garage space than he did bedrooms and he had cool. corvettes and jaguars and you know just a bunch of fun things to be around as a kid and you know so obviously just growing up in those early ages watching that and seeing that and he was really into it you know the bookshelves were covered in either car magazines or or you know pewter models and things like that but there was one particular moment that kind of made me not just love cars, but kind of just love what cars could be and do. And we were leaving his house and his buddy was towing a trailer and we went to go pass him. And like, you know, I don't even know, you know, if you would ask him, unfortunately he passed away when I was eight, but I don't know if it would be a moment that he would remember, but it was my first moment of losing traction in a car. (laughs) And he just kind of ripped, you know, banged second gear. And it was a 1957 Corvette and the wheels spun. I could like hear that noise and just passing the, you know, the trailer and then getting back over into the lane. And it was just this really kind of cool experience thinking like, I I, I really, I love that, you know, (laughs) and I I think I kind of wanted to have a piece of that for the rest of my life. And whether it was matchbox cars or radio controlled cars or any of that, like cars were always kind of a, a piece of my life. Well, it's so nice. You got to have those experiences, even though for a short time with your grandfather, because obviously they've stuck with you for many, many years. So, very nice indeed. My grandfather was a farmer in Texas, so all I remember is visiting him. I grew up in Southern California where I was surfing every day, going <laughs> going to Texas and being on a farm. Talk about a culture shock, but the coolest thing he had was a big combine tractor that he let me drive, which I thought was kind of <laughs> neat, but kind of slow too. So, well, let's take a look at some of the many roads you've driven down, Brian, and talk about a big challenge or a big failure. Now, you've had a very entrepreneurial-esque, I should say, life in what you've done, all these different things you've been involved in, and not really the normal nine-to-five job either. So no doubt you've been faced with some big challenges along the way or even a big failure. You might have hit somewhere along the line. So take us to a point, walk us through that, but tell us how that experience helped you gain even more momentum as you move forward in your career. You know, I think one of the biggest challenges I actually had for me was probably college. I was a good student in high school, you know, not the top student, but within the top kind of 15%. School came very easy to me. And I was the kid who never had to study for tests and could just take them and ace them. And, you know, I never did my homework, but between acing my exams and not handing in my homework, I still got through life with a B plus average. And that was good enough for me. And when I went to college, I went to college for mechanical engineering. And I think I just wasn't really ready for school, but I also wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And I, I, it took me five or so years to kind of figure out what that was. And, you know, both my parents from academia and science, engineering seemed like the direction I wanted to go. And it took me a couple struggles to figure out what it was that I really wanted to do. And even once I figured out what I wanted to do, I, I didn't really know what that path was. Mm. And I felt during that period that I had slipped behind, you know, I'd mm-hmm. watch a lot of my friends graduate, get school, you know, get jobs at engineering firms and, you know, kind of start to move on with their life. And 
and I felt like I, w- I was still kind of thrashing. I had changed my major like four times and, you know, just really had this question of, of what I was going to do. And if you asked me then, you know, do you plan on working in automotive? I, I would have, it w- would have told you that automotive was just a hobby for me, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I started to realize, and it's one of those things that when you look back in hindsight, and you look at it, you say, oh, well, it was clear as day, but it's not clear when, when you're there, right. you know, kind of in the muck and mire of it. And I was sitting there running a car club and like, you know, putting on events for my car club and they were getting in the way of my schoolwork. You know, I was choosing to write a newsletter for my car club or, you know, come up with some event that we were going to go do or, or plan a drive or a cruise and not go to class. Mm. And for me, I looked at it and at the time I didn't think to myself, oh, this is really what you should be doing. You should be doing something more in this space. I just looked at it as like, yeah, I'm, I'm screwing off and I'm, I'm not getting my work done. And I saw it more as something that was just a distraction. Right. Uh, and as I shifted into journalism, you know, journalism was sort of this, this moment for me where it was the first time again in college where I became a top student, you know, instead of just kind of scraping by and just trying to pass the class, all of a sudden I was the student who was raising his hand and really interested in in what was going on in the classes. And, you know, at that time it was, uh, it was a, it was kind of a crazy time living in New York city. Um, you know, nine 11 had just happened. Journalism was something that was allowed and, and important again, because we were telling this different story. And I had in my head that, you know, I was going to go and become a war reporter and, and, and do that version of, of my life. And, you know, I was this kid who had this kind of punk rock mentality and I was going to be punk rock through journalism. And <laughs> in the end, I, I went a completely different direction. Yeah. But, you know, it, it was completely different from what I had done. And I will tell you that to this day, that slip in school because it was kind of I don't want to say a fall from grace but I mean I, I came from a my mom's like graduated top of her class like everyone in my family was very kind of academic sure and suddenly I wasn't yeah because of that it made me work twice as hard when it finally played out you know and, and I still tell people to this day that I feel like I'm putting in a double shift to make up for the fact that like maybe I wasn't I didn't have the right laurels entering some things, you know, and mm. I, I got lucky early on with a couple opportunities and then realized that that was luck that got me into that position into a magazine. I worked at a magazine called Mass Appeal in New York City, which was a culture mag, but it had an automotive section and no one else in the company knew anything about cars. So they, they basically let me own that. And I was an intern and I'm writing my own column <laughs> nice. in the automotive section. And, and that really grew into everything because it grew into my my job, which eventually was at Rides Magazine, which allowed me to launch Zero to 60 Magazine and meet Ken Block and, and do all of this. But I think that that moment sort of gave me this extra yeah. energy, this kind of extra kick in the butt to say, all right, you, you weren't able to get it together then, but now you got to work twice or three times as hard to be able to catch up. And as a lot of people who I've told this to have said, look, Brian, I think, I think you can slow down now, but unfortunately <laughs> I'm still wired that way where it's like, well, if there's more hours in the day to get ahead of the competition, yeah. that's what I'm going to. Yeah. You know, this is a really great story and I appreciate you sharing a really personal story too, because a lot of kids go off to college because their parents tell them to, because they think that's the right thing to do, but they have no idea where their passion is. And they end up floundering a bit. Sounds like that's kind of what you faced for a while until you figured out how to click that passion with a career. What's a, maybe a word of advice you might offer some young person that's in college right now that might be facing these things, listening to your story going, yeah, yeah, that, that's me. Why can't I get out of my own way? 
What's a piece of advice you might share so that they could get there quicker? This is actually a question that I get asked a lot from like fans of our YouTube show. Kids will DM me and, and ask me questions. And, and someone actually just asked me this this morning. Like, I'm going to college, but I don't really know what I want to do. And how do I get to where you are? Like, what's the path to get to there? And, you know, I told them, you know, do internships. Mm. And for me, I did many years, too many years than I'd like to, than I'd like to admit in college. And then I did an internship for six months that completely changed my life. And that was an internship at, at Mass Appeal Magazine. Because once I got to, once it went from being school and being tests and actually being like in the workplace, I really got to understand what it was that it, putting a magazine together was and, and, and the parts of it that excited me. And, and then I had this whole new passion for it. And I think if you take an internship somewhere and you don't have that passion, then you shouldn't do it. Yeah. And I should have realized that early because in high school, I went for, um, I forget the name of it. It was a, it was a, academic grant and they, it was a scholarship grant mm -hmm. and I did an internship in my, in high school in engineering and I, I hated it. Uh, I hated it. But like, and it didn't click for me then to say, if you don't like this, yes. why do you think you want to work in this field? Mm -hmm. But to me, I saw engineering as like, I want to work on cars and design cool things, yeah. but I didn't really want to do all the math and everything that yeah. was in between, sure. yeah. which was not the place I should have been going. So, um, but you know, I, I think that, doing that. And I, a lot of people who come to me, I'll say, look, do an internship in what you think you want to do. And if three months from now you still want to do it, then you should have that kind of, you know, strive to go and to go chase that. But if in three months from now you don't like it or you don't like being in that world, then maybe you should look at something else. Yes. And look, there's good and bad internships. Some, yeah. some interns, internships will have you chasing coffee and collating files. Yeah. But if you find a good internship where you at least get to be kind of near the work, you know, and I would recommend intern at a small company that really needs you. Mm -hmm. Don't go intern at a huge company that is just fulfilling a need to have you, you know, right. handle yeah. kind of work. But go somewhere where you can actually be a part of it. And I remember at this internship, at Mass Appeal, it was like two months into it, and I was sitting at you know at a creative meeting, and they had me sit in on all the meetings. And finally, you know, the publisher asked me what my thought was, and I, cool. you know, I, I, I couldn't believe I was being given that opportunity. And I spit out this idea, and next thing I know, it was a feature story, and they eventually let me write the feature story. And I'm actually sitting in my home office, and that feature story is framed on my How wall. How bad? How bad it is? <laughs> yeah, because that was this moment that I, you know, you really get that chance. So. Being able to actually, you know, put those boots on of the position you think you want to be in and, and go do that. I think an internship, you know, means a lot. I'm not telling people to to skip college, but I do think that as soon as you can start interning in college, even if you don't get course credit for it, do it because it may change the direction. If I had done an internship my freshman year in, you know, something different, I may have thought a lot differently about what I wanted to be. Because mm -hmm. let's be honest, at 17, which is the, you know, how old I was when I went off to college, I really had no idea who I was, what I wanted to do, what I was good at. You know, I would have told you I was good at math then. Now I joke that, like, you know, I'm a creative and I don't do numbers. Yet I made it a calculus four. But, I, you know, I just – I see myself now as a creative. And I would have never told you I was a creative person then because yeah. very few people told me I was creative in high school. So I didn't have that 
push in, in that direction. And it took, you know, a few more years of trying a few different things out to realize like, oh, this is actually what I'm good at. And it's okay that I'm disorganized here. Or I'm not good at this here because I'm very good at this here, you know, and, and that's something it took years to figure out that my strengths make up for some of my weaknesses. And as long as I know what my weaknesses are, it just makes me stronger in other ways. And that's something no one tells you when you're 17 years old. You're right. So. Great advice. Love it. How about uh, an aha moment in your career? I think you've probably had a few of those because you've done some very exciting and different things, but all wrapped around your passion for cars. But is there a career aha moment that stands out for you? You know, it's 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 tough. I think, you know, there, we had a lot of them kind of at Zero to 60 magazine, but I think it was so much work and it was such a struggle to get that thing off the ground and keep it running that we didn't have enough time to look up and, and see the aha moment. Mm-hmm. We were all just kind of struggling to get it done. And then before you knew it, it was kind of over situation. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, it, it goes back to what I was saying on the on the college level thing. I think that even when we were making zero to 60, you know, if you listen to any interviews of me back then, I, I think I'll say something to the effect of like, you know, who trusted us us kids to, to make this magazine. And, you know, we were, I was all of 26 or seven years old and I was the oldest person in the, you know, running, <laughs> running the magazine. <laughs> yeah. It was like a bunch of young kids and we were in our early, you know, our early twenties and I was old compared to everyone else. I mean, I think second to me other than Tony Harmer, who was about a year older than me, but still acts 10 years younger than me. <laughs> you know, everybody was was young yeah. and we were comparing ourselves to motor trend and automobile and road and track and car and driver and a lot of the people over there had so many years of experience and i think that you know we had a lot of confidence but it was fake confidence it was very much a fake it till you make it kind of approach sure. you know and the uh, a, a term i learned from ken block which i still to this day you know we say it's perception is reality yeah. but we were all very scared of what we were doing and and whether or not we were making the right decisions but i, I think that that was sort of this moment where we were doing things wrong quote unquote wrong because we didn't know the right way to do them but then all of a sudden they became right yeah. you know and i i think that we did that at 0 to 60 and then we went on to do that you know with jim Connor. And everything else we did, I mean, we didn't really know the right way to do it. So we did it the way we thought it should be done. And we've been lucky enough that the way we thought it should have been done sort of helped revolutionize the way to do things. Yeah. And that was, you know, this, especially whether, you know, things like Gymkhana, where we launched, you know, we, we looked at things and said, we're going to put a ton of effort into building a Facebook page and really abandon the old website, you know, model. Mm-hmm. And at the time, people would have told you, what? What's Facebook? That's like a thing for college kids. Right. You know, we took a lot of risk in doing things different. Um, and I I think it took me a couple of years to sit back and realize that what made us good was that we, you know, did it differently. And that maybe if I had classical training in being a marketing person, I would have actually been at a disadvantage because instead we had to learn the right way to do it, you know, and that, and sometimes, you know, and I think that that, that has been, you know, a theme throughout my life. I'm also not classically trained as a director, but have managed to be able to kind of make that work, you know, and, and it's good because back to my college thing, by not being classically trained, it makes you feel like you got to work harder. Yeah. It, It makes you feel like you don't belong there. And because of that, you work twice as hard. But I think that, 
that is sort of this aha moment of like, you know what? And you know, and there's a term for it now, but when we realized that I don't think people use the word disrupting, Mm -hmm. but it was like, we were disruptive in everything we did because we didn't do it the way other people were doing it because we didn't know how to do it that way. (laughs) So we just, we did it our way, you know, and and it turned out that our way was right. And we also didn't do it their way because their way wasn't working. So we were like, okay, let's just figure this out. And no one ever told us that was the wrong way to do something. And Hey, we had our failures, but at the same time, you know, we had a lot of our successes by that too. No doubt. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of the term imposter syndrome when people are young and just starting off something they just aren't quite sure what the heck they're doing, but they just, like you say, fake it till they make it. They keep trying things. And sometimes those new things work out really well. Let's mm-hmm. have a little bit of fun and go back and talk about your first really special car. That first car you got that had great meaning for you. What was that? So my first car is still probably one of my favorite cars. It was a 1995 Volkswagen Golf. I was living in Burlington, Vermont, going to school at the University of Vermont. And snowboarding was a big kind of, you know, part of culture for me. And I was very influenced by the car I bought because of snowboarding. Um, At the time in the mid 90s, Subarus hadn't really picked up. If I had been a snowboarder 10 years later, I probably would have bought a Subaru instead. But at the time, everyone who was at the mountain snowboarding was driving Volkswagens. There was those ad campaigns of the the K2 ad campaigns where you could get the skis or the snowboard and they were calling them two plankers and things like that. And that was just, you know, and my, a lot of my friends in snowboarding and riding BMX had Volkswagens. So it was something that I just sort of attached to. And like when I was around 14 or 15 and kind of always kind of wanted to get one. And I, I just liked everything about the Volkswagen culture. And there was kind of this little car culture based around water-cooled Volkswagens. Obviously, air-cooled Volkswagens were huge, but then the water-cooled Volkswagen community was sort of really starting to grow in the mid to late 90s, and there was events like Waterfest and H2O International that were coming about. And I bought this car off of a friend of mine, actually a friend of mine's mechanic, and he had like half modified it. You know, and to me, I mean, you know, looking back at it now, it had some tinted windows and it was lowered on some wheels and you know and it had different headlights on it and i thought it was like i thought it was a hot rod you know i was <laughs> yeah i was 18 years old and i had saved up for it for you know two years of miscellaneous you know jobs here and there everything from shoveling walks in the winter to you know, working in a snowboard shop so when i bought it it meant everything to me and it was like you know i spent a lot of time in that car because i commuted back and forth from new york city to vermont like every two or three weeks so i was always on these kind of long drives in it i learned i taught myself to drive stick in it i bought the car didn't know how to drive stick picked it up and figured out how to drive stick <laughs> how to get on, home yeah on a 45 minute long drive home in the snow ooh <laughs> even harder so, yeah yeah but you know it was one of those it was a car that i continued to modify um i eventually changed everything on it painted it you know did this did that put a put a vr6 engine in it and and then i built you know a car club kind of around my passion for that car and i think that without that car club it was a it was a car club called auto krieg and the um which was actually a term that i had found that like I think loosely translated meant like a competition between automakers, you know, in, in German. And I really like this term because we were all about Volkswagens and we were very kind of, you know, single automaker pride of this. Like we love Volkswagens and Audis and Porsches and, and you know, and that was this, this yeah. one community. Oh, yeah. 
and grew up around that. And, you know, I started a car club that to this day, I still work with some of the guys, you know, who I started this car club with. I mean, Jason Slack, he's, uh, he's gone off to do a ton of great things in the agency world and has worked for, you know, a bunch of agencies doing stuff for BMW and Maserati. But we started that car club together. He just, you know, he was just in my wedding party. Uh, Tony Harmer, photographer who came up with me at zero to 60, continued to work with me through a lot of stuff with Ken and, and Hoonigan. And we, we all, met each other kind of through this car club and it was very interesting how you know it was we were in our young i was actually 19 i think when i started it and it was something that stemmed out of kind of the love for this car and i found other people who had the same love for volkswagens and, oh yeah you know i look i look back at it now and there's still a lot of my roots are attached to that i i still find myself you know i still love volkswagens and and audis and and obviously porsches and stuff like oh, that yeah. um, and that was something that really guided uh, me into car culture as the culture side of it. I think before that, I liked cars and be belonging and being part of a community that was the water-cooled Volkswagen community at that time kind of taught me what community and culture was about. Farfanugan. <laughs> Remember yeah. that campaign? That was, that was a big <laughs> ad campaign back then. Oh, yeah, yeah sure. absolutely. Yeah, I had a... Seven, my first brand new car was a 79 Scirocco. Ooh, love that, Mark one. Love that nice. car. Yeah, that was a really cool car. Drove that all the way from Southern California, Mammoth, many times to go skiing. And uh, it was a great fun car. My wife had a GTI, a Jetta GTI. GLI, I'm sorry. GLI. Yeah, GLI when we were first married. That was her first new car. So, yeah, love VWs and German cars. How about Seller's Remorse? Is there a car you've owned that you've let go that you really wish you had back? Clearly, my reputation has not preceded myself. I'm very bad at selling cars. <laughs> well, good <laughs> so right for you. Now, right now, my wife and I own 13 cars. Oh, my uh, gosh. The insurance yeah. company loves you. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Our premiums are, are a sight. But, you know, I sold my first car, but it was I think that was actually kind of a good thing that I did because I, I needed to kind of let go of it and, and do something different. Um, but, I, you know, I... I had a bunch of cars that I kind of bought and flipped real quickly during a period of time because I was able to work on cars. So I'd buy something for a couple hundred bucks, drive it for a few months, and then sell it for you know a thousand, yeah. a couple thousand bucks, yeah. and make some money here and there. So I never really had grown a, an attachment to those. Um, you know, I think more so I, I've got cars that I've bought and I've kind of neglected and i think those are the ones i have a little bit more of an emotional kind of resentment that i didn't do more with them when i first got my job at rides magazine you know it was my first real job i had a business card and i had an office actually with a window which was amazing in new york city yeah. and i went and bought a 1991 audi coupe quattro which is kind of a rare bird there's uh -huh. only around they only imported around 1700 of them yeah. and a lot of kind of gone missing and and it wasn't anything special like in europe it was the s2 but here it was a 165 horsepower inline five that you know was less power than my vr6 had in my golf yeah but i bought it because i just loved how it looked and i really liked the idea of owning an audi you know i was yeah, sure. 24 and it was like oh an audi that's very cool and i worked on it and it was this project and i still haven't finished it and it still sits <laughs> it, and i it just comes with me like a you know it's this symbol of my you know my inability <laughs> to finish things sometimes that has just traveled with me and i've talked about it in zero to 60 magazine i've now talked about it and stuff i I do with Hoonigan and I have this like audience that follows with me 
that just heckles me for not finishing the car. Like I've developed a group of friends based around not finishing this car on the internet. (laughs) So that one is, you know, something I, I want to get to, but yeah, unfortunately, um, I'm not that good at selling cars. So I'm, I, I just sold my Audi a L and I think that that one might be the first one I regret because I switched out for the exact opposite of an a L I'm six foot eight. Oh, goodness. you know, a big vehicle, yeah. something I've always wanted when I was working in the magazines, you know, you'd get press cars and I got to drive the A8L and I thought to myself, like, this is the perfect, you know, it's the perfect Autobahn machine. It's fast, it's big, it's, you know, it's got all the amenities. So I bought a used one four years ago and as a daily driver, because living in LA and commuting, it just was better than driving my Nova or the 911 to work or my truck. Yeah. So and I absolutely loved it, but I decided to let it go because I'm trying to I'm trying to skinny my fleet so I can get more of them running and then having less of them. There's a saying in the company called "Is it, uh, you know does it run? Is it Brian's?" Because there's a bunch <laughs> of cars sitting on lifts that don't run. Yeah. And it's now become kind of you know every time I post anything on Instagram, I have random Hoonigan fans saying that to me, and I feel like all right, I gotta it's 2018, I gotta get some more of my cars running, but. Anyway, I sold it and I bought uh, or I leased a 2018 electric smart, which is the exact opposite (laughs) of an 8L. Oh, my gosh. And you fit in that car? Oddly, I do. I I drove one when they first came to the U.S. We did a story where I raced a where I raced a bicyclist through Manhattan to see what was what was faster, a small car or, you know, or someone on a bike. And he beat me by like two minutes. A bike is just faster through Manhattan. Oh, sure. But, but I, I was amazed that I fit in it. The whole joke of me driving it for the magazine was I wasn't going to fit in it. And then the vehicle showed up and sure enough, I fit because it has really high, you know, high roof. It feels like I'm sitting in a captain's chair and it it doesn't have like a sports car feel to it. Oh yeah. but no, oddly fit, and it's kind of a lot of fun because it's like an electric go kart that's like really fast to forty, so you like can drive quick but not get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to yeah. make fun of you for having that Audi project. <laughs> I'll, I'll be one of the guys that does not pick on you, Brian. We, we love we love car projects here at Cars. Yeah, so I appreciate that. Well, tell us a little bit about what has you excited and fired up this year of what you guys are up to. Last year, we um, as you know for Hoonigan. We launched a YouTube uh, channel. I mean, we've always had a YouTube presence. Our, the Gymkhana films have always lived on YouTube. And, and I've always loved making the Gymkhana films. Um, it's been something we've been doing for 10 years now. But we've moved into kind of a different type of content. And it's it's a daily type show. It's Monday through Friday. We have a show called Daily Transmission. And we have a couple other shows that we've rolled out. And it's really, to me, feels like getting back into what the magazine world was like for me. You know, I, I really enjoyed kind of those multiple deadlines. The thing about Gymkhana that I will admit, um, and I don't admit it often, but it's it's a lot of pressure because you only make one a year. Yeah. And they all are kind of dependent on the next one. You know, I, I, I think one of my biggest fears is that one of them fails. Mm-hmm. And if one of them fails, then is that it? Does the series end? You know, right. where... The thing with a magazine was, you know, you have one issue that doesn't do well. Well, guess what? You're already working on the next issue by the time you find out that that issue doesn't do well and you move on to the next thing. Right. And 
what we're doing now being, you know, and you know this at episode 955, (laughs) you you know, you can have a few you love and you have a few you don't like as much, but you keep them moving Mm -hmm. and it keeps the audience on because the audience knows, hey, if today's not that good, I'll I'll check back in tomorrow because I think tomorrow will be better. And we're getting to, you know, be able to do that now with our YouTube content. And it's a very different format. I think that if you would have asked me, you know, what do you want to do? What's what's the next step for you? I would have told you television. I think television would be the next step. But now, I, I don't know if that really is true. And we are doing a, a show with Amazon, although I, Amazon being kind of, you know, OTT is a little different than regular television. Yeah. But I, I enjoy the freedom and the instant response that we get from things like YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's very, you know, and I'm sure you see this as well with your show is that it's great to be able to do it, do something, have it up and out a few days or a few weeks later, and then have immediate response to it and, you know, immediately right. see how well it's doing oh, and yeah. be able to watch and track those numbers where I did a TV show at Discovery Channel and it took like seven months for the show to come out. And then once it came out, it took us forever to really find out how it did. And, and you're, you know, you're searching forums to see if anyone's talking about it. Sure. Meanwhile, on YouTube, it's right there in the comment. Well, you know what people liked, what they didn't like. And I think working in the magazine business or working in just entertainment for so long, it's really nice to have that immediate um, criticism and review. Yeah. You know, and look, sometimes it is criticism and sometimes it hurts when you put something out there and it didn't do as you thought it would mm-hmm. or the audience didn't accept it that way. But I think as a creative, it's really nice to have that because the not knowing, not knowing whether or not someone liked it or, or the only criticism you have is inside your own group of peers is a lot different than, than it being out in the public. And Absolutely. that's been a lot of fun and, and also having the ability to just try different things because you're not, you don't fear failure as much. And I think that that is something that, and I could probably do an entire podcast on the fear of failure, but I think it's something that creatives get very caught in. And sometimes I find myself and I find my close friends not doing things because they're afraid they're going to fail. Oh yeah. And when you have the ability to fail and then the next day, you know, succeed, it, it helps wash that failure away. And I think that that makes you just better at what you do and better at creative. And I think that it's helping all of us at the company just try things that we would have been too scared to try if it was, you know, one video a, a month instead of, or one video a year like Jim Connor is, where now it's like, let's try it. If it doesn't work, don't worry. Yeah. There's always tomorrow. Oh, I love so. it. Where, now, where can our, our listeners find the show? Um, that's, uh, it's on YouTube and it's just, uh, the Hoonigans is, uh, the channel. So I guess it's like youtube.com slash the Hoonigans. There you go. So I'll make sure type in in Hoonigan and daily transmission. I'm sure Google will find you there. Oh yeah. Yeah. We'll find you for sure. I'll make sure I put a link on Brian's show notes page on the cars. Yeah. Website. Now, Brian, here's a very introspective question. It's how you perceive yourself manifested into a vehicle. What would you be? That's that's a rough one. I know. <laughs> there's the there's the what do I want to be? I no, mean, I, 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 mean, I don't care about that. <laughs> or, a nine, or a Porsche nine five nine, but I'm probably more like a Land Rover Discovery one. Okay, which is like a great vehicle and worked really well, but has a lot of issues, and <laughs> you have to constantly maintain it, and you don't know when it'll give up on you. But at the same time, it's when it runs, it's really really good. There you, you know? go. I like that. Yeah. Well. You put some nice thought into it. I appreciate it. I can see that for sure. Well, Brian, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsors. Everyone who knows me knows I'm really picky when it comes to my cars and keeping them looking new. 
I'm a huge fan of Covercraft floor mats. I've protected my vehicle with their products for decades. Want to keep your vehicle's interior looking new? It's easy with Covercraft floor mats. They will protect your vehicle's factory carpets from daily abuse, weather, pets, children, weekend adventures, and those everyday spills. It's a fast, easy, and stylish way to keep your vehicle looking new. Covercraft floor mats come in a wide variety of styles, materials, and configurations, all designed for maximum protection. In addition to Premier Plush and Berber Custom Floor Mats, you'll also find cargo liners, canine cargo area liners, dash covers, and sunscreens. Enhance your vehicle's looks while protecting the factory finishes with easy-to-install and easy-to-clean floor mats. Covercraft is the right choice. Learn more today at Covercraft.com and tell them Market Cars Yeah sent you. That's Covercraft.com. What's every automotive enthusiast dream? To design and build that perfect garage. My friends at Metron Garage are a group of creative talents who've combined their passion for cars with their careers in architecture. Their service includes unique garage design and state-of-the-art fabrication. They will create the coolest custom garage for you and your vehicles. Metron Garage's system features fully engineered commercial-grade material and structural framing that's stronger than traditional construction. Their designs are pre-engineered to meet your building codes for fast, bolt-together construction. With over 25 years of experience, you'll see a 3D rendering to visualize your custom garage, and the final structure will fulfill all your storage needs. Contact Metron Garage today and begin realizing your dream garage. Go to metrongarage.com. That's metrongarage.com. Garages built for discerning enthusiasts. Where it's not just a garage, it's where your dream garage comes true. All right, Brian, we're back and we're entering what I call the last lap. I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. Kind of a lightning round here on Cars, yeah? So here we go. Yep. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? I don't know if this is automotive, but it came from someone automotive, so I'll tell you. Carol Shelby told me, change your wives as often as you change your cars, and then he introduced me to his fifth wife. Oh, my god! And considering that I still own all my cars, I think I'll have a good marriage. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's very good advice at all. Oh, man. You, you got to have a lot of money to be trained in that many wives, because you're, you're bound to lose a lot of cars during that process. <laughs> It was a great conversation I got to have with Carol Shelby about a year before he passed away. Oh, no, and I, no, and actually, he, another great one he gave me was I asked him what his what his favorite cars were, and I, this one is is probably a truer statement about cars: is it's better to drive a slow car fast than a fast oh, car yeah, slow. Absolutely, every time. And I think that that is something I've always stood by. Yeah, absolutely. Would you share one of your personal habits you believe has helped contribute to your many successes over the years? Postmortem, I think everything I do, I when I'm done with it, I don't I don't let it disappear, but I also don't I always go back and tear it apart. Mm. And and it's painful to tear apart your own work, yeah. but I think it just makes you better, you know, and I think that that's a really important thing to do and it it's sometimes difficult when you run a company and you just had a success and then you ask everyone to sit down and tell everyone how we, how you didn't do it right. Yeah. You know, but I think it's important cuz you only you can make yourself better. I think that, you know, it's really important to be your own worst critic cuz other people other people will either not tell you it's bad or they'll tell you it's bad coming from the wrong place where you yourself, you know what's wrong with the work you do and and why you want it to be better. So yeah, I think having a really good, 
you know, post-mortem ritual is really important. Yeah, I learned, a, or I heard a great quote by the great racer, Nikki Lauda, where he said, I learned a lot more from the races I lost than the ones I won. And so that's a great way to think about it. Now, how about a resource? There are lots of great and fun resources out there, like Hoonigan, of course. But is there a resource that you find yourself going to on a daily basis you'd like to share? Yeah, you know, one for me is, and I think it's the same mentality as kind of bring a trailer, but I spend a lot of time on Craigslist and I search weird things Mm. and it helps me in kind of a research process. Mm -hmm. And a lot of time, and I kind of have these, I sort of have these like, um, make-believe projects in my head where I think, you know, a dream project in my head where I think to myself, well, right now, I'd really like to build a Volkswagen Type 3 Fastback as like a safari car. Oh, yeah. And that's what I'm currently doing right now. And then I go and I research it and I see who else has done it. And then I find out that they actually ran them as rally cars in the late 70s and they were somewhat successful. And this was information that I would have never have known if I didn't find what looked like a, you know, a killer deal on a Type 3 Fastback uh, you know, on the web. Oh, yeah. And and I think that like for me I I tend to just peruse what's on Craigslist and I'll do certain parameters, I'll do certain years or certain price points mm-hmm. and then I'll just go and I'll find something that I maybe had never seen before. It could be a motorhome or something random and then and then research it. And for me, I, I'm very research heavy and I think I use the internet very different than a lot of people because for me it's just like a library you know it's like where can i go where can i dig in and find more information and it might start at wikipedia but then it ends at some guy's you know blog or even even a blog it's like a website that he's been running on a geocities webpage since 1996 (laughs) but it's the only place where there's information you know about this particular change they made for the corvair or this or that you know and I, i really enjoy that the depth of the research so yeah for me a lot of it just honestly starts at craigslist find something you don't know about and then go dig deeper for it and it may bring you to places like bring a trailer or obscure cars which is a great facebook group or things like that but um yeah i I just kind of i'll just search rant the most random things just years i'll just search cars for sale in 1975 Mm -hmm. and see what comes up very good advice now if i can arrange for you to have a drink with anyone in the automotive industry Living or deceased, who would that person be? Brock Yates. Ah, uh, yes. I unfortunately got to meet Brock Yates before he passed, and I didn't take the time to talk to him. Mm. Like I spoke to him quickly, but I yeah. think I was it was during one lap of America, and it was kind of a crazy moment anyway. And I just I didn't want to be a nuisance, yeah. and it's one of my regrets that I didn't talk to him more because his work in Car and Driver in the seventies, which I wasn't even alive for yet, but I went back and read, is what influenced me to build and create Zero to Sixty, which really kind of paved the path for everything I've done Very since then. Cool. I had his son as a guest here on Cars, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I wish I'd been able to meet his dad. Now, how about a book? Is there a book you've read that you think our listeners would really enjoy or benefit from? In the world of kind of media or just marketing or everything that we are doing today, you know, at Hoonigan, anything – Malcolm Gladwell has written. I make everyone at Hoonigan read Gladwell books, whether it's Blink or The Tipping Point or What the Dog Saw. saw. Those books, I think, are really good at making you understand how – the human mind works around things like marketing and and so on, or why things succeed and why things fail. Um, I read a lot of books, and and I know that those are ones that a lot of people have read, but they really are they really are very good. And I, I do think that they kind of they're the creme of uh, all the kind of books out there that 
are people trying to read and trying to learn how to better understand the entertainment world or the marketing world. One of the one of the great books that I loved about Colin Chapman is uh, Inside the Innovator by Carl Lupinson. Yep. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, the Porsche guy. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Which, by the way, for Christmas, I just got two of his coffee table books oh, that my yeah. my my mother in law. It's weird to say that. It's I just got married, <laughs> I, so that's and new. And congratulations, <laughs> by the, the way. That might be the first time I've ever said that. Hey, but, there you but go. She got me. Yeah. And I've, I've been I've been reading those too, which are great, but. Um, no, the Colin book, it, I think he was just, you know, such an, I mean, to steal the word, an innovator and in everything yeah. in racing. And, um, you know, back to what I'd said earlier, you know, it's slow cars driven fast or fast cars driven slow. Oh, yeah. I think trying to make something faster in a way other than just adding power is something that's always excited me. You oh, know? absolutely. I, yeah. When I first started vintage racing, I raced a 1960 Lotus 18 Formula Junior and – not a very fast car, but you had to be able to drive well to go fast in that car. So I think it was a good car, at least for me, to start in rather than the car I jumped into after that, which was a Lola T290, which was a much faster car. <laughs> a little bit more power, yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot more. And a lot fatter tires, too, than those skinny little Dunlops. Well, Brian, we're up to the checkered flag. And this last question could be a bit of a doozy. I'm going to buy you any cool collector car. Not a up-to-date car or regular daily driver. This needs to be something very cool, old, vintage, but fun. But I want you to enjoy it. And money is no object, so what's it going to be? Uh, you know, I've had to think about this one before. And I think that the the quick answer that at least most of my friends who grew up in my era, because I think that dream cars are very generational you know it's the cars you grew up that were posters on your wall you know some of the cars are the, the Countach, the even the f40 you know i think kind of as you, we got a little bit older but for me both of those cars are not drivable cars and i want a car that i'd be able to really drive and and really kind of own uh and i think it had to be the porsche 959 Ooh. because i think while it's often forgotten in terms of those great supercars more of its technology has actually been handed down to road cars yep. and it's a car that like you can still drive yeah. i mean I, I it's not something that is only to be brought out on sundays to brought to, you know to be brought to a cars and coffee near you yeah. instead it's actually a vehicle that if you wanted to you could you could daily drive it it's not very different than my you know i have a 911 turbo uh 91 mm -hmm. and it's it's not that different from that in terms of it's it's a very drivable car and a lot of cool and interesting technology that still kind of you know holds true versus some 80s technology that does not and it's also i had a poster of it in my room and i had when i was a kid my mom bought me this book belongs to stickers that you'd put inside your textbook <laughs> yeah and it was of a red 959 nice. for me that it, that's just one of those cars i'd, I'd always want i mean uh. you said you said money, no option. Of course. So. No, I'm going to buy you whatever you like. Well, that's uh, definitely a bucket list car, too, for me. I love those. I'm a big Porsche fan. My listeners know, but I love the 959. I've never had the privilege of driving one. I've driven in one, but I've never been in the left seat. So uh, maybe when I go out and find you one, you'll allow me to drive it down to L.A. and uh, we'll go Yeah, no problem. Fun. There you go. <laughs> well, Brian, you've taken me on an awesome ride today. I knew you would. I knew this would be fun. I've really enjoyed getting to know you better, and I want to thank you for sharing your Automotive journey with the Cars Yeah listeners. Could you offer us one little parting piece of wisdom or guidance before you rip off down the coast highway in that Porsche 959? 
I guess I guess it's one that uh, that my wife has started to say to me often, and she said, you know, with cars and with motorsports, and and especially to all of us who work in that industry, uh, you know, try not to take it too seriously. In the end, none of us, no one ever died over it, <laughs> you know. And I, I think that that's something that we, a lot of us in the industry, um, and I think we started the conversation this way. I think that we sometimes take it for granted how great it is to kind of enjoy cars, work around cars, and be a part of cars. And whether that's working on cars or developing content around them or working, designing them or whatever it is, it's it's a great – it's a really great kind of uh, place and, and sphere to be a part of. Mm-hmm. And – you know, it's a job and it's work and it gets stressful and all of that. But take a step back and realize that, you know, you're involved in something that's really entertaining and, and a lot of fun. And, and to everyone who wants to get into the world of that, realize that, like, passion is what is what gets you here. Yeah. You know, I, I think that that's one of the things that's really important. A lot of people ask me, you know, how'd you do this? And it's, it's just passion and realizing that, you know, you're going to have bad days and you're going to have worse days than the bad days and, it's, <laughs> and all of that. But the passion is what makes you kind of just still get up in the morning and, and get it done and take those failures and takes those losses. And because the wins in it are, are a lot of fun. And at the end of the day, you've turned your hobby into a career and, you know, very few people can do that. That is a win. And it also sounds like you married a very smart woman. So uh, kudos to you for that, <laughs> having a, a new wife. And congratulations for that as well. And she, well, I bet I met her in the industry. So she's she's one of us. There you so go. Makes, well, makes even, even better. And it sounds like your new mother-in-law also understands your passion <laughs> as well. So you're very fortunate there as well. Well, listeners, again, you can find links to everything we've shared and talked about today on Brian's show notes page on the Cars yeah website. Brian, what's the best way for our listeners to follow along with you and learn more about what you're doing? My Instagram is probably best. It's just uh, at Brian Scotto. And um, I try to post there a bit more often than I usually do. Otherwise, uh, at the Hoonigans for everything we're doing at Hoonigan. Absolutely. I would encourage you guys, if you don't follow along, of course, everybody I think does. But if you haven't, check out Brian's Instagram page, check out Hoonigan. You're going to have some fun and you're going to spend some time there. So pour yourself a tall drink and sit back and have some fun. Brian, thanks for being so generous today with your time and expertise and for sharing your many uh, creative experiences with me and the Cars Out listeners. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you down the road. Thank you very much. You're welcome. If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over, congratulations. You're ahead of most people. But what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy, too. Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimball.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. member, Finra Sipic. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!